Welcome to the Make You Famous podcast, where host Jeffrey Goldsmith talks with guests about fame and how to achieve it. I'm your host, Jeffrey Goldsmith, and check out the book at makeyoufamous.co. We have with us today Ron Turner of Last Gas Publishing. So welcome, Ron. Well, thank you very much, Jeff. Good to be here. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. It's good to have you, Ron. You know, I, you were you were the first person I was introduced to in San Francisco when I moved here in 1995 by uh, Howie Jarowski of uh, of Heavy Metal Magazine. You know, because I used to write yeah. them years ago. Yeah, right. And uh, and and I sort of and you know I've published this book called This Book Can Make You Famous. So you know, I thought it was appropriate to talk with you. Because you've seen so much happen over the past, you know, 30, 40 years in the comic strip and comic book and art book publishing world. Um, you know, what do you think it is that, you know, catches the, it's a very broad question, but what do you think it is that catches the attention of public now? I mean, what do you think it is? Why do people glom onto like, R. Crumb or certain manga or what, what is it that, that people are seeking in, 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 in comics that makes one thing succeed and the other thing fail? How do you know when you, when you look at something, some, give us something you to consider for publication? I mean, how, how, how do I know that it's a good thing or how do I know that it's an interesting thing or how do I yeah think other people yeah, are thinking yeah, how do you know that it's interesting? Well, it it uh, I guess I have little sensors somewhere in me that start turning on when I see something. You know, it's like, uh, uh, and I realize it, it. You know, I I was just kind of pondering that this morning about, you know, what sensors do we have? You know, where where is where is the guilt land in our head? You know, what where, what's what motivates us to do things or to not do things or to what, what starts to scour the the pot clean so you can use it again, you know, or the, or the things that are, you know, the little stalactites hanging down from the lid of the pan that influence the cooking, you know, what, what's really going on in somebody's brain when they uh, take in information? You know, there's, the, the the eye is what we mostly take most of our information. It's mostly visual, although it's not the only thing. As string theory now is finally arriving, that there's some kinds of vibrations in the basic universe that allow for all of our thinking and being and sensing and whatever. And ha- have we sensed enough? You know, as anyway, when when some information comes in through the eye, that's fine. But what almost everybody doesn't know is there's a small nerve net in your eye that's already there filtering information for you. And um, so not all the information goes in. And that's why you can have 100 people, and they've done these in experiments, uh, mostly with only like 15 or so, but they'll show them something like a staged accident or something. And then they'll get their responses, and they'll get everybody's response. And there's no two that are exactly alike, yet they've all witnessed the very same thing. And that's because of that beginning little nerve net, and that's coupled in by their learning experience. But I know getting right. back more to what to what your thought about things is, is that 
what makes them you know stand out and are unique or you know either to be feared or loved or you know what, what's the the tropism that's involved mm-hmm. and uh you know what what's the attraction or or the repulsion and it goes back to very very basic uh you know phylogenic uh things that we developed through millions and millions of years to um to become our, our sensuous being that we are now. And, and so if you're taught something that's bad enough, you'll, uh, uh, you'll perceive it as bad, whatever the hell that means. And, uh, mm-hmm. you, you know, your pleasure, there are pleasure centers. I mean, you know, uh, I remember my first realization of how strong a pleasure center could be wasn't my first time I masturbated, but it was when I read um, about mice who were in a starvation experiment, but um, who would be placed on food, but there was they were hooked up to their pleasure center, and if they pressed a a button, they would get a a, a shot of electricity into this pleasure center that would like make them like basically have an orgasm. And they would sit there pressing this button until they starved to death on a pile of food. You know, so, so we have some very strong motivators in us that uh, are not always used for, you know, for some reason there's um, breaks are already being able to be applied culturally or socially or uh, biologically. And uh, all you, you, you kind of, you know, go, go through all of that and saying all of that. So what does what does attract her? It's like it's like your boss Howard. He was a great guy. He never really became too famous outside of the, the group of peers that he had. Yet I would consider mm-hmm. him one of the more remarkable observers of human character that there was. Yeah, and uh, because he, he 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 sat back and watched things and understood them, he had a fairly normal life, as best I can guess. You know, family, kids, mm-hmm. and things. And a job, but his, but he took very well to his job. He did his job well. He paid attention to everybody, and he also understood the quirks of all the people that he had to work with. And uh, so he was almost like a well-rounded guy, but he also had the ability to see a sense or a trend or whatever, and instead of getting in the way of it, getting off to the side or behind it and kind of riding it through the crowd. And- and you as you as well, Ron. I mean, you had a great you have a great sense of of what works and what doesn't. I mean, did, did you know you knew Arkham? You you picked up great manga artists to publish, and you know it, it's not just in the U.S. But f- folks from all over all over the world came to you to show you their stuff, and, and you you picked them out of the air and 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 put them on in books and and got them out there. And you also distributed books for. Dozens and dozens and dozens of small publishers. For many oh years. yeah, well we go. We had about six. We had about six hundred suppliers that we cherry picked what they had. Mm-hmm. And, and, that, and so that how was did a you, good trick. Right, you cherry picked what they had. I mean, before we got on this call, I reminded you about a book I did ten years ago called Cafe Haiku, and I showed you the book. And this was 12, 10, 11, 12 years ago. And you looked at it and you said, it's cute, but it won't sell. I said, why not? And you said, it's not weird enough. And 
You know, you were so right. Cafe Haiku did well in a way, but it didn't catch on because it wasn't what people well, wanted. It, it, needed, it, it needed an illicit promise that wasn't there. Okay. In and of itself, it was fine. But the illicit mm-hmm. promise is like when you uh, meet somebody at a bar and uh, all kinds of interior motives are being um, assailed and uh, guessed at. And mm-hmm. the, the hopeful thing is we still end up a happy ending <laughs> at some point. <laughs> but uh, but there, there has to be some kind of promise there that goes beyond just picking it up, uh, a book, and looking at a few pages and put, you know, putting down. What makes you want to take that home with you? There's a right. promise that somewhere in there there's an answer to whatever your question is, mm-hmm. be it intellectual, biological, or social. Mm-hmm. And something something was uh, looked at it, and I thought, okay, this is missing something. It's fine, but it's it's not something that somebody will be willing to put down uh, a few shekels for. Mm-hmm. And so, now, why it doesn't mean that to... it doesn't mean that the times haven't changed. It doesn't mean that that isn't mm-hmm. the right time for that book now. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Haikus themselves are coming back into popularity. That's um, true. People are. People are, you know, seeking ways to communicate and, you know, different things. And maybe there's another window, uh, even with the word haiku in it, that might, you know, alter its uh, uh, attention-grabbing ability. You never know. You, you never, never know. know. But that's, I mean, that's the big problem these days is that attention-getting has become the sole uh, driver of our media, and now everybody's mm-hmm. attention is being sucked up by little video screens or big video screens. You cannot go anywhere. Even the billboards now move and talk to you. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think I'm not sure that self-driving cars are are being made for their economy and their safety as much as they are for that gives you more time to be on somebody else's screen and get their attention and see their adverts. Oh, and perhaps they'll, they'll give us self-driving cars for free and then serve us advertising while we're, while we're being driven around by them. Captive audience. Well, that's, in the why, that's why you get, that's why you get cheap printers. And, yep. You know, you had to pay for the paper and the ink, but the machine was free. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, tell me something about like, for example, I mentioned R. Crumb earlier. I mean, he's he's like a he's an icon of the of the comic strip world. There was something about his desperation, his hopefulness, his his craziness. You know that that people lived vicariously through, and and that, that attracted us. I mean, you know. Speaking of mice sitting on a pile of food, you know, having orgasms, I mean, our crumb, perfect example, right? Yeah, why? Well, he, why he, he, um, yeah. Well, first of all, he was extremely talented. Right, uh, right. As an artist. I remember I was at a, uh, a movie opening with Robert one time that uh, Tab Hunter had started, Tab was there, and uh, a few other you know, mostly gay film producers and whatnot. And Crumb was walking around with his 
you know, he was in motion and he had a sketch pad as he often did in a pen. And he was drawing as he walked. I couldn't believe it. He was able to capture, it was before they invented these uh, cams for people to use so they wouldn't, you know, jog the picture when they're walking along with their little camcorder. Right, those right. Yeah. Motion, you know, things. But there he was, he was doing it all in his head and transmitting that to his hand and still drawing the perfect cartoony calf of a beautiful woman in the crowd. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, I just kind of like remember just kind of observing that because it was so strange and yet beautiful at the same time. Here's a guy who's able to, you know, accomplish, you know, what most would find extraordinarily difficult to get anywhere near to perfection at. It just flowed right. from him. Right. And, and you know, it, uh, it's a very rare, that's like a one in a hundred million talent, right? You'd think so, but uh, Robert thinks that his uh, his brothers might be better cartoonist artists than he was. You know, like mm. uh, Max was is okay. You know, I don't know if you ever saw the book we published called Chrome Family Comics, but we had Max edited, and so he put a lot of his own work in there. And it's absolutely brilliant. And then uh, Chuck, the other brother who had committed suicide. Uh, if you saw the film Crumb, and I urge anybody listening to I this did. to please rent that film Crumb and watch it. Um, incredible. You know, if you, uh, if you get into these kind of inside people's brains, you realize, you know, there's a gene or two in there that I guess nobody else has, but that family did have. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I don't know. The rest of us mortals just have to be, you know, observers. Exactly. I saw a funny cartoon the other day that uh, was a, a caveman on a wall somewhere and, and some um, mother-in-law complaining to her daughter while the guy's drawing the wall. It's like, you had to get a cartoonist as a boyfriend. You know, the guy's drawing on the cave wall. You know, the, Hmm. Uh, do, 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 do you get that reference? It's like so. Here, here's what we consider the earliest art on the caves in France, forty, fifty thousand years ago. And exactly. but back then, if if it was in present times, the mother said complaining, saying like, "Geez, here you go. You get a boyfriend, but he's just a damn cartoonist, you know." But it's interesting that that reference because cave, you know, it was an essay by T. S. Eliot who 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 claimed that all of our storytelling and all of our myth-making and everything goes back to those cave paintings. I forget the name of the essay, but it's, it's a T.S. Eliot essay. And so there's, oh, there is some that. truth in that. Yeah, yeah. And, and maybe that's, you know, some people are the ones that got to draw on the cave walls that everybody liked. And, um, and those are the, somehow that, that, um, those icons or that pattern recognition in our in our culture uh, uh, is, was passed down to us, you know, over the past ten, twenty, thirty thousand years. And those cave paintings are now printed in um, books and in magazines and in um, you know, and, and are, or projected online. And, and 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 that's we were still responding to the same kind of stimuli. But 
in a more and more and more fragmented, nuanced way, you know. Um, I don't know. That's a pretty sophisticated thought for a uh, Wednesday afternoon at 4.40. <laughs> but it seems like it. It, it, it you know, you, you, that's sort of what I wanted. never scared me. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. It hasn't really scared me either. I'm just uh, selling us short. So tell me, you know, what do you, you know, do you have hope for artists? I mean, do you have advice for young people who are starting out drawing and, and telling stories and, and, and continuing in the comic strip tradition? Do you have, do you have advice for these kids who, are, who want there's to a, get out there? Old, and, you know, there's an old folk song, uh, Pete Seeger saying it. You probably find it on YouTube called The Bells of Romney. And I think one of the lines is, is there hope for the future? Cry the brown bells of murder. Even God is uneasy. Rang the most spells of Swansea. And what will you give me? Cry the bells of Swansea. Something like that. It goes on and on. Many verses. It's fantastic. And um, so is there hope for the artist? Well, as Robert Williams says to any disappointed fan when Gives a lecture at an art institute. So there's only about one in a thousand of you will ever make a living doing art. Right. <laughs> so, so and, and that, yeah, it's true, but that doesn't mean that that doesn't, you know, take care of a great amount of your need of expression and understanding of the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, what is what is, what is beauty? You know, it's like, and how do we understand that? Things come late in life. Huh? Uh, and, and sometimes early. I, I remember my folks on a trip to San Francisco from Fresno in like a 48 or so. I had a little camp. We had theaters back in the Snowy Valley back then. And mm-hmm. uh, and they started with tent theaters and different things. And eventually I got a, a camera and motion, you know, a little wind-up, you know, motion picture camera. So I take films and I did nothing but the uh, go to Gate Park, but take pictures of flowers, endless fifty-foot mm. rolls of color flowers. So I must have liked them. Well, that's why did I mm-hmm. take them? And um, mm-hmm. but then I could care less. My mom was really a nut for going back and aggravating her her arthritis, digging up Bermuda grass and planting flowers. I could care less. And now I find myself. Uh, in my late seventies, out uh, spending a lot of time growing things in the in the yard and enjoying it, and especially with succulents and seeing the kinds of blooms they make, and cactus and things. But again, there's that attraction. I like their weird blooms. And I like the weird plants that make weird blooms. So, yeah, because they're, they're new, maybe because they're new and unusual and not, you know, well, and, and well, it's new stimuli. Well, it slices a little more mold off the cheese here. What is what is it? What makes those things weird? Because they're not like normal things that are presented to us. They're far from the norm, and for some reason, I'm always attracted to that. One of our one of our best comics we ever did uh, for a while. I did a bunch of comic books uh, with George DiCaprio, Leonardo's father, and we did a a bunch. When we did that, we called them Yenser and Ganif was our logo for that. She went scumbag and thief. 
and uh, our our logo was a scale with a pound of flesh on one side and a bag of coin on the other balanced. Mm. Our motto was never fall in love with your stock. And um, anyway, we did this comic called Forbidden Knowledge. It was mostly George's idea. And Robert Williams did the cover about Neanderthal cave people, cave the cave bear clan. But on the left side, going from top to bottom, was a bunch of letters written. You had to read it going from top to bottom. And it said, mm-hmm. curious, curious, your attraction to this unclean thing. Hmm. Curious, your attraction to this unclean thing. And, uh, and Robert's very succinct at, at, at identifying what things are and mm-hmm. how they fit into place. And that kind of like described every dirty comic ever done, every peephole that was made itself available, every keyhole, every uh, sideways glance down a dress for a male or every uh, butt-looking girl watching a football game or, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. Curious, your attraction to this unclean thing. Again, it's the dynamic of, it, of future promise of reward. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So it's back to the mouse starving on the pile of food, being stimulated. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that that, you know, we've, we've gotten at it. You know, why do some things take off? I mean, it, and it's not just about becoming famous. It's about creating something that's unusual, that stimulates and attracts people. You know, curious our attraction to unclean things, right? And, uh, and, it's, things that, that, and it's things that will get, it's also things that you feel might give you an advantage, might help you out, might prop you up, might fill a void. Mm-hmm. It's all these things. Well, fame is certainly something that does that, right? Fame, people feel like they'll get invited to the parties. They'll, you know, they'll get respect. They'll be able to do more good in the world, you know? Maybe they'll make more money. I, I, I remember one time that uh, Tim Larry was coming to town. I had to help him get to his uh, motel. He mm-hmm. stayed at the Phoenix. He was in town. And uh, mm-hmm. so my, my car was in the shop, and I had to borrow the... Uh, breaking wheels uh, at the time they had a Camaro which had I think some chains in the middle on the seat and some other stuff and I so I went on this dirty old Camaro picked up Tim at the airport and I said hey Tim we gotta go pick up my son Colin at, uh, at school on the way in fine fine so we Colin so I rode along got down to his uh, motel and dropped him off uh, then the um Next day, we had to pick him up and take him downtown. Tim needed some cocaine, and he was begging me for to get some, buy some off the corner for him. When we were going to the radio station KCBS and uh, for an interview, and so we got him down there. I got Colin to sit in the room with Tim while he did the interview with a uh, guy George Rast, who just still does the traffic for them down there. And uh, huh, that would be a good tape to get hold of. What about George do that? So huh, anyway, so but then about two years later, I'm sitting around the house. Colin, by this time, is 
says, when he's looking through an encyclopedia, he says, Dad, says, yeah, what? He says, Dad, he says, Tim's picture's in here. I said, yeah, what about it? He said, but he's famous. <laughs> I said, yes, I guess he is. <laughs> so, you know, who bestows fame and what does it do? It's like, up to that, he, Colin just thought he was a, an interesting guy or one of dad's weird yeah, friends exactly. or something. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I exactly. You know, I, I interviewed Tim Leary back, we, I guess it was in the 90s for, for details. We never published it. It was, I think he was having huh. a bad day. <laughs> but yeah, what does fame really do? It doesn't really change. You don't become immortal. You're still, you know, you still have to eat and take a shower and pay the bills and, you know, clean up your room. You're still like living with all the issues that everybody else has to live with and maybe more because of the fame. All right, Ron, do you have anything else to add? It's really nice so to talk to you. For you too. Well, for things coming up, we have um, a new high fructose uh, collected volume coming out at the end of the summer. Got nice. Todd Shore's next great opus of artwork that he's been doing, working on for the last uh, 20 years. And mm-hmm. uh, at press right now is Who Killed Hunter Thompson, which is by Warren Hinkle and 35 other people. Hinkle mm-hmm. wrote the introduction, which is 200 pages long. And yeah. this should be quite an interesting book. It covers all of Hunter's mm-hmm. interactions with Ramparts and Scanlons and the times that he was uh, worked as the night manager for the Mitchell Brothers for two years. Nice. So, uh, yeah, so it should be really fun. Yeah, that sounds like a good book. I, I Yeah, I, I, I have a particular interest in Hunter Thompson. I'm sure a lot of other people out there do, too. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Ron. I'll, I'll talk to you soon. Well, thank you. Okay. Take care. Thanks for listening, and be sure to check out the book at makeyoufamous.co. 